you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Proverbs 28, verse 1. Proverbs 28.1 The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. When did fear in the heart of man first raise its ugly head in human history? When Adam sinned by eating the forbidden fruit, it was at that time. For we read, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Genesis 3, verses 9 through 10. Adam's conscience, dear ones, tormented him with guilt, which caused him to hide from the very presence of God who came to commune with him in the cool of the evening. What was intended to be a time of sweet fellowship, precious communion with the living God, took a terrible turn for the worse and became a time of guilt-inspired dread of the living God. A guilty conscience, dear ones, even makes men a terror to themselves. When we are living in a guilt-ridden state, the last person very often with whom we want to be alone with is ourselves. For then we have time to replay in our minds the same tape over and over again that makes us run from the Lord and flee from that guilty conscience. Can we not see then that sin, the guilt of sin, The condemnation of sin is that which makes men cowards. What are your fears today? From what are you running? Are you trying to escape a guilty conscience? An overpowering individual or group of individuals? Do you fear the loss of work, family, or individual freedom. You may fear the consequences of being wrong in a decision you make, or you may even fear the consequences of being right in decisions you make. Maybe you are overcome with fear of war, of terrorists, various conspiracy theories that abound. Perhaps you have a fear of death itself. 
regardless of what our fears are, regardless of what they may be today, we want to face our fears. We want to face our fears face to face, eyeball to eyeball. We want to stare them straight in the face and learn the divine way to cease being cowards, cease being afraid. The main points from our text this Lord's Day are the following. Number one, the wicked are overcome by fear. In Proverbs 28, 1, the first part of that verse. And the second main point, the righteous are overcomers of fear by faith. In Proverbs 28, 1, the second part of that verse. First main point, the wicked are overcome by fear. Listen again to the inspired wisdom of Solomon in Proverbs 28.1a. The wicked flee when no man pursueth. When King Solomon states that the wicked flee when no man pursueth, we are to understand this to be a character trait, as it were, of those who are the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us, by nature, are like Adam who hid in fear before receiving the promise of grace through Jesus Christ. It is part and parcel of our fallen nature to run in fear. And the remnants of that nature yet remain with us, even presently. In fact, when we read of the final judgment that falls upon those in the lake of fire, in Revelation chapter 21, one of those types of persons that are mentioned may even surprise us. We certainly expect certain things and certain types of people to be amongst those who are condemned to hell, like the unbelieving, like the abominable, and like murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, all having their part in the lake of fire. But the very first one that's mentioned there is the fearful. The fearful will have their part in the lake of fire. The fearful. Try as man will to disguise his fear by laughter, by joking around, by anger, by cloaking it with all of his wealth and enjoying all of the wealth that he has by immersing himself in drunkenness or a drug-induced state, pleasures, bodybuilding, martial arts, 
hypnosis, whatever he tries, God states that fear due to the fall of man into sin is bred into the very fabric of man's nature. For the wicked cannot ultimately deal with the root of fear. And the root of fear is the guilt and the condemnation which sin deserves from a holy God. Natural man cannot deal with that. Doesn't have the ability to deal with that. I should point out that fear, like sin in general, is not altogether eradicated, as I alluded to earlier, from the heart of the righteous who trust alone in Jesus Christ for their eternal salvation. A sinful fear, dread, terror, worry, and anxiety yet plague the Christian in various ways throughout his or her life. Out of fear, Peter and the other disciples of Christ fled to save their own necks when Christ was betrayed by Judas there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter even shamefully denied, as we read just a little bit ago, denied knowing his Savior three times out of fear of what man might do to him. You see, there was the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian as it relates to fear is not that in the one case there is fear and in the other case there is no fear. The difference is this. The non-Christian has not been legally delivered from the bondage of fear, whereas the Christian has been legally delivered from the bondage of fear through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the difference. That which is legally accomplished by Christ on behalf of his people and all of his people, from the youngest to the oldest, to the weakest, from the weakest to the strongest, have been delivered from the bondage, legally delivered from the bondage to fear. The Christian is no longer bound or obligated to be afraid, for he or she is united to a risen and victorious Jesus Christ who overcame the sin and bondage to fear on our behalf, just as he legally overcame all sin, legally overcame Satan, and legally overcame death for us all. The torment of a guilty conscience has been remedied for the Christian death and resurrection of a living, triumphant Jesus Christ. And that is why we can read with such confidence of this victory. The words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. 
There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And that is why in the same chapter we can read these words with confidence. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, the act of justification in being declared righteous by God on the basis of Christ's imputed righteousness to us, and the work of sanctification... And gradually growing us up in Christ and conforming us to the image of Christ. In dying to the old man and living more and more to Christ in our lives. In these two graces of justification and sanctification, we have as one of their benefits to be free, to be free of the torment of fear with an ever-growing and increasing enjoyment and understanding of the breadth and the height and the depth of Christ's love for us. The Apostle John says, in 1 John 4.18, which ought to alert us to give us some idea how we're doing with growing in our knowledge of Christ, how we're doing with growing in the grace of Jesus Christ, when we read in 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. The more we grow in understanding the love of Christ, the more that deals with the whole matter of fear that we have. Dear ones, as, as the adopted children of God, there is our status. There we are to rest securely. 
in that love. And the more secure we grow in God's love, the more we will see that fear has no stranglehold upon us. It is one of the tools, in fact, that you no doubt have seen in your life as I have seen in my life. It's one of the tools which Satan will use against us in our weakness and at our lowest point of weakness is fear driving us driving us to the point of so much fear that we want to despair of life itself simply take me out of this life I can't cope with the fear that I have any longer and he is the mastermind at paralyzing us with fear of people, fear of circumstances, and a slavish, sinful fear of God himself. He will lead the believer to fear the very God of our salvation with a slavish, sinful fear. And he will accuse us, as we have read in Romans chapter 8, He will accuse us before the throne of God's justice, even that throne built upon now through our mediator, the covenant of grace. He will accuse us before God. And the Lord will simply point our chief adversary to his work, to what he has accomplished for us in removing the torment of fear from us. Dear when Satan will have us, if we let him, and if we allow him, Satan will have us running from the only one who can deliver us from that tormenting fear. Well, before moving on to the second main point, let's talk about what a sinful fear is not. What it is not. First of all, a sinful fear is not a due respect for lawful authority According to Proverbs 24:21 we read My son fear thou the Lord and the king lawful magistrate This applies to all lawful authority whether in the family or in the church or at work or in the civil realm For this due reverence and respect is founded upon the fifth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother. Secondly, a cautious determination to avoid danger, to avoid sin, or to avoid temptation is not sinful fear. This is actually a keeping of the sixth commandment to take such steps. 
wherein we are taught to endeavor by all lawful means to preserve our own life and the life of others. Therefore, fleeing persecution in order to preserve one's life is not sinful in and of itself as long as the testimony for Christ is not abandoned or forsaken in the process. For the Lord Jesus himself told his own disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. But I would submit to you that the fear of the Nicodemites, the time of Calvin, was a sinful fear and not a lawful unsinful fear for the Nicodemites sought to escape persecution by saying that we can outwardly go through the motions of the Romish ceremonies and yet inwardly say we don't really believe what we're doing. They thought that that was one way they could escape lawfully. Persecution due to the fear they had. They could have this pretense, that that pretense, and simply outwardly going through these motions didn't really mean anything. They didn't see it as compromising their faith as long as inwardly they said that they believed in the Lord and they believed that these ceremonies, etc., etc., were sinful. Well, that's not anything but a sinful fear. Thirdly, a serious concern or burden for oneself or for others is not a sinful fear. For we read from the words of the Apostle Paul in the epistle to the Galatians, chapter 6, verse 2, that this is our duty, in fact. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. To bear the burdens of others, to be concerned for others, is not in and of itself sinful fear. Now, obviously, at any point, we can cross over a line and become so <coughs> fearful and tormented over what might happen to ourselves or to others that it does become sinful. God places such burdens upon our hearts not that we might plunge ourselves into this tormentful fear but rather cast ourselves and all others upon the strong arm of the Lord. And again, I'd suggest that within proper boundaries, this is simply maintaining and fulfilling, again, the sixth commandment, which the Lord has given to us to preserve our own life and the lives of others. It's fulfilling the law and the duty of love. It is when we do not cast these burdens upon the Lord and rather carry them all ourselves 
that we are led into sinful worry and anxiety. For the Lord, likewise, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, tells us exactly what we should be doing in such circumstances. We feel overwhelmed by worries and anxieties. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. I'll read verse 6 and then verse 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him. Why? Why should you cast all your care upon him? For he careth for you. Because he cares for you. What an invitation to cast all our cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. And fourthly, a holy reverence for the triune God is not a sinful fear. To fear God. According to Psalm 19, verse 9, we read, The fear of the Lord is clean, not dirty, not sinful, not impure. The fear of the Lord is clean. Likewise, we read in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Where does wisdom sprout from? Where does it grow from? It grows from the fear of the Lord. You see, dear ones, this, this holy fear that of which we speak is an awe and a wonder that we have as we stand in the very presence of God who is holy, 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 who is the Almighty, who is full of mercy and kindness, who is from everlasting to everlasting. This fear of God is a holy fear, not a slavish fear, not a tormenting fear. It is a holy fear and reverence wherein we take God seriously. We know we can't play games with God. We only deceive ourselves if we think we can play games with God, that we can deceive him, that we can delude him. We take his commandments seriously. We take his warnings seriously. We take his promises seriously. We treat him not with disrespect or irreverence by our thoughts, words, or deeds. And when we do, we fall upon our face and confess our sin as showing such disrespect for such a holy and perfect 
and merciful being as the one true living God. We seek to preserve the infinite dignity of his holy name and everything. Not just his, when we talk about his holy name, not just his name, God, but everything by which he reveals himself. We treat holy. We don't take, for example, his creation, his word, and treat it as ordinary. It is holy and set apart because it expresses the character, the nature of God himself. We, we've said what sinful fear is is not. Let's just now very briefly talk about what sinful fear is. What sinful fear is. First of all, sinful fear is in the heart of a Christian, speaking about a Christian, an overwhelming terror of Satan, of man, of sin, of death, of hell, or any other circumstance in life. It is to be controlled by our fears, led by our fears, tormented by our fears, paralyzed by our fears. Consider even how someone like the prophet Elijah, certainly one who would be way up there at the top of the list of those that we consider to have been so courageous. For in 1 Kings chapter 18, what did Elijah do? He gathered all of the priests of Baal together and challenged them, as it were, to a duel. You offer sacrifices to your God. Do whatever you want to do. And they did so throughout the day. And I'll offer offer a sacrifice to the one true living God, pouring water, dumping water all over the sacrifice. And the God that consumes the sacrifice by fire is the one true living God. And God, in answer to Elijah's prayer, consumed the sacrifice and all the water that filled the trench about the altar. And then Elijah goes up upon the mountain because it hadn't rained for three years. There's famine in the land. And he falls upon his face before God and prays for rain to be sent upon the land. And no clouds are in the sky. And he continues to pray. And he sends his servant and says, Do you see anything yet over the horizon? And his servant says, I see a cloud that looks like about the size of a man's fist. I 
off there in the horizon. And Elijah continues to pray, sending them back seven times, not giving up. And God sends a mighty downpouring of rain as Elijah exercises faith in the promise of God. And then we read in 1 Kings chapter 19 that Ahab, King Ahab, goes and tells his wicked wife, Queen Jezebel, what Elijah has done. And Jezebel says that if he's alive tomorrow, tomorrow, basically swears, he won't be alive tomorrow at the same time. And fear, fear and torment fill Elijah's heart and he runs in fear after the mighty victories that God had just wrought on Elijah's behalf and on Israel's behalf. He runs in fear. You see, that's how fear works. That's how Satan works fear in our hearts. Even at the point that we have seemingly achieved the greatest degree of victory in overcoming that which was fearful, we let down our guards and like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus said, Pray lest ye enter into temptation. Be always vigilant. Because fear at any moment can come by way of the enemy. It's part of still a remnant of our nature as it presently stands, even though legally we've been delivered from the bondage of sin. It's still there. The enemy just stirs it up just a little bit, even after those great victories. And there we are, like Elijah, running for our life at the threat of Jezebel. Second, sinful fear is a worry or anxiety that we will not cast upon the Lord, but we rather retain and hold on to. We'll not cast it upon the Lord. And we rather become preoccupied with that particular fear, with that person, with that event or circumstance that leads us to trust rather in the arm of flesh to deliver us than in the arm of the Lord. Third, simple fear in the heart of the child of God is, dear ones, a slavish dread of a condemning God. Dear ones, there is a legitimate servile fear that may result in the heart of the wicked or in the heart of the hypocrite who's merely going through the motions. <coughs> but it is a sinful fear for one who is trusting in Christ as the only one who can redeem him or her from the curse of the law and yet sinfully, mentally removes him or self from the covenant 
of grace and mentally places himself or herself under the covenant of works and believes or begins to think in terms of what he does or she does is what is going to merit his or her salvation or condemnation rather than looking to the covenant of grace which Christ has already fulfilled and which that person has already embraced as his or her own. All that we secure for ourselves in such a state of mind, this servile, slavish fear, is a torment and a fear of God's condemning wrath and anger. Our conscience becomes guilt-ridden even when we try our hardest to please him. If we, if we place ourselves under that covenant of works. The best that we do, we realize, isn't good enough. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't bring peace. The best that we possibly can do if that's where we want to go. God in such a state of mind appears to us to be an avenging judge whose infinite wrath cannot be satisfied by us. Here is a state of mind in which we even as Christians, can endure, as it were, the torments of hell if we place ourselves under that covenant of works rather than, by faith, remaining under that covenant of grace. However, I want to just say there is hope in Christ, obviously. For God has not given to us a spirit of fear, as he says in 2 Timothy 1.7. but a power and love and a sound mind. <coughs> We're not consigned. If you have a problem kind of putting yourself at times back under that covenant of grace and that condemning wrath of God, there is hope. There is hope for you. You can grow in your knowledge of what Christ has already accomplished. For you, what he has already accomplished, and you can, by grace, you can grow in faith in laying hold of that righteousness of Christ alone. Saying everything, agreeing with Satan about everything he says about you and how wicked and evil you are. There's no debate there. Yes, that's true of me. I am wicked, I am evil, I deserve hell and eternal condemnation. At every point, I agree, I agree, I agree. But I have an advocate at the right hand of God who pleads not my righteousness, but his own righteousness. And because of that, I can have peace of conscience and deliverance from that condemning conscience. And for that reason alone can we have freedom from that condemning uh, conscience. 
Fear, dear ones, worry, anxiety spring ultimately from unbelief and, and guilt. We fall into the torment of fear because we have, like Peter, taken our eyes of faith off of our almighty, faithful, and merciful Savior and rather looked at the crashing waves, the tempestuous winds and storms which assail us. And that's what we have focused on rather than looking at Christ. We have come, dear ones, to hear and believe the threats of man, the forecast of events and the terror of circumstances more than we believe the promises of Almighty God who cannot lie. Dear ones, fear may be manifested in various ways in our lives. Let me just suggest a few of the ways that fear is manifested in our lives. First, we may lash out in anger to seek to destroy the person or thing that is feared. Saul sought to kill David out of fear, according to 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 12 and 29. The Pharisees conspired together to murder Christ out of fear of Christ, according to Mark 11, verse 18. So one way in which fear is manifested at times, it lashes out at. It's not the one who is most courageous necessarily, according to God's word, that lashes out in anger, but rather the coward that lashes out to seek to destroy the person they fear. Secondly, we may laugh and make fun of the person or thing that is feared. and go to the opposite extreme. We think that if our fears can become, in effect, a joke to us, we can rid ourselves entirely of our fears. Well, this is a short-lived cure for a terminal problem. Because, as we've noted, fear is a part of our nature. Ignore it. So the remedy is stated, ignore it, ignore the fear, and it will go away. Well, perhaps it will work for a time. But that is not the permanent or biblical solution to fear. Thirdly, we may run from the person or thing feared, like the Israelites who ran in fear from Goliath, all the while shining their armor and sharpening their swords. Here a person thinks if he can keep himself occupied and constantly active, though he's running from his fears, he just fills his mind with all these other things, he can rid himself of his fears. Just make himself real busy. Pretending as if that Goliath isn't out there. Still shouting to us to come. Send out your, your brave one. Send out your, your courageous one to fight with me. This may again provide some temporary relief where we just become 
so preoccupied and so busy, but when we're all by ourselves, when we lay our head upon our pillow, our fears come back like a roaring lion. It will not deal ultimately with the fear or with the cause uh, guilt and sin. It simply treats the symptom but not the root problem, which is unbelief or guilt. Fourthly, we may become paralyzed and immobilized by the person or thing that is feared. At such times, we are like a deer that can't move out of the road because its eyes are caught in the headlights of an approaching car. So we feel like, I can't make a decision. I can't go this way, or I can't go that way. I'm afraid to make any decision. And so we do nothing. When in in fact, to do nothing is not really to do nothing. There really is no neutrality. We really are making a decision. If there is a right decision to make, when we make no decision. We're like a person before an audience that has stage fright. Maybe we've all been through that kind of an experience. I know I have. And to some degree still do. But I can remember in college going through the... The class that I took in speech, and just being terrified to stand in front of the class to give a speech. And the terror that I felt left my mind completely blank. <laughs> and so, again, fear can paralyze us. And so we convince ourselves that the safest thing to do in such a situation is to do nothing. Fifth, fifth, we may suffer under unrelenting guilt for sin that has been committed in the past and has even been confessed, repented of, and forgiven by the Lord, but fear will not cease or be abated in the conscience, it seems, ever tormenting the conscience of the forgiven sinner. Like David, as he cries out to the Lord in Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Here David certainly recognizes the blessedness of of this. But again, many do not enjoy the full blessing of what David is here speaking about, but continue to suffer from sin they have committed in the past, though they have taken these steps. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Notice, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. 
For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. That's certainly what we as Christians should, should enjoy. But so many times, the tape, as I said, just continues to be replayed and replayed and replayed in our minds. And it is Satan that is at work. Satan that is running that particular video machine. That's turning it off and turning it on at precisely those moments he knows we are most vulnerable. We need to recognize that's what's going on. If we have confessed, if we have sought God's forgiveness, if we are resting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, get thee behind me, Satan. What does God say before... Briefly considering the second main point, what does God say about sinful fear? Well, this is what he says. First of all, he has not given us such a fear. Sinful fear doesn't come from hell. It doesn't come from God. To those who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their eternal salvation, this sinful fear doesn't come from God. Such fear, dear ones, has its source, as I said, in the, with the devil himself, who seeks to destroy us in our effective, effectiveness to serve the Lord and to serve our family and to serve our brethren. Again, in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given to us the spirit of fear, but of power of love and of a sound mind. According to Romans 8.15, again, demonstrating that God has not given us servile, sinful, slavish fear. Romans 8.15, Paul says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And according to Hebrews chapter 2, Verses 14 through 15. Fear has really no place, no legal place in our life because the one who produces fear has been so dealt with by Jesus Christ. We read in Hebrews 2:14 and 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, that is Christ, also likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him, that is the devil, that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. God dealt with the devil in order to deal with the fear. And because he's dealt with the devil, he has dealt with the fear and the bondage that the devil held us in. One other thing that 
God says about sinful fear. As Christians, we are not to fear man or even Satan, for they can only kill the body. We are to fear God. They cannot kill the soul, but God can kill the body and the soul. And so we're to have that holy fear, that reverence of God alone, but not of man nor of the devil, according to Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 7. And so we come to the second main point very briefly. The righteous, the righteous are overcomers of fear by faith. We read back at our text in Proverbs 28. And I'll read again the first part of verse 28, though we are focusing in, on this point, the second part of, I'm sorry, the, the first part of verse one, though we're focusing on the second part of verse one, the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Solomon contrasts the fleeing in fear of the wicked with the boldness of the righteous. This boldness is said to be like that of a lion. Now, the lion of all beasts in the world uh, epitomizes that which is without fear or foe or enemy. The Lord, by this contrast, encourages the Christian that he, regardless of his weakness, regardless of his fears, has been given the grace of boldness and confidence like that of a lion. He has been given that grace. It has been purchased for him by the lion of the tribe of Judah on the cross. The Lord Jesus purchased that courage, that boldness, as a grace for every Christian. It has been deposited already into your heavenly and spiritual bank account. It is only up to you to, by faith, make a withdrawal on that grace through Jesus Christ, taking him at his word that you are more than conquerors through Christ who loved you. That is your inheritance, to be bold as a lion. That's your inheritance. That's what Christ died to make you. Bold as a lion. Not chasing your tail. Not chasing and running from your shadow. The only question, dear ones, at this point is, have we by faith and trust in Christ been withdrawing that grace of confidence and courage in the living God, which Christ himself has purchased for us. Well, we've seen how sinful fear terrorizes us and debilitates us. Let us now learn how to overcome our fears by the grace of God. And that's what we're just going to briefly spend the rest of our time looking at.
how to overcome our fears by the grace of God. First, we must admit our own inability to overcome fear in our lives, in our own strength, by our own means. To be able to overcome fear apart from God's grace. Telling ourselves like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid, is simply not going to do it. We must see our own weakness and acknowledge our sinful fear before we can experience the power of Christ to overcome the fears in our life. You know, it's an amazing paradox that those who are most courageous and bold are those who are most aware of their own inherent weakness and fear. The solution almost seems too easy to our sinful fears. When we feel as though we are enslaved by our fears like a prisoner within a barricade of barbed wire, the way to overcome fear is threefold. Trust the promises of God. Enjoy the forgiveness of God. And practice the promises of God. Put it into action. Apply it. Do it. The one naturally follows the other, for we cannot enjoy the wonders of a guilt-free conscience apart from learning to embrace the promises of Christ made to us in the covenant of grace. And we cannot reinforce what we believe if we're not practicing what we believe. How do you reinforce what you believe? By practicing what you believe. You see, that's a kind of reciprocal relationship (coughs) because when we confess what is true, what God says is true, That helps us to practice what is true. And when we practice what is true, it reinforces what we have said is true. And it continues to go back and forth. But if we break that particular connection, then there are going to be all kinds of problems in our life as a result. Since our fears result from unbelief and guilt, Confidence and courage result from trust in Christ, forgiveness by Christ, and in faith applying those promises daily to our lives by claiming them, by claiming them right in the midst of our fears where we acknowledge our fears. Dear ones, I declare to you with all earnestness and sincerity that to the degree that you cling to the Lord as your righteousness, as your strength, as your health, as your life, as your joy, so your contentment and your peace and your, and your rest and your casting all your cares upon Him, all your anxieties upon Him, all your worries and fears upon Him will likewise follow to the same degree. It is faith in the promises of a faithful, loving, holy, and almighty God who cannot lie that brings the grace of confidence and boldness and courage into the life of the believer. 
there are particular promises that maybe you like to think upon and dwell upon and meditate upon to overcome fear in your life and to instill within you faith and confidence in the Lord God. There are some that I likewise just turn to and I find it helpful not simply to memorize them from the text but if they're found in the Psalms to memorize the psalm that goes along with it and to sing the psalm. Something about not just quoting the scripture but singing the psalms instills just that courage within within us. But one of the psalms and uh, I'll simply read the first verse is Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Or Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. And then in Isaiah 26, I read as to the call to worship today, Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Dear ones, how does our faith in Christ grow to overcome our fears? Let me just list for you, in closing, some suggestions. First of all, identify and acknowledge your fears before God and to yourself and even to your wife or your husband or to a trusted friend. These are my fears that I need to overcome. Second, confess your fears as rooted in your own sinful unbelief and not taking God at his word. Third, seek God's forgiveness and renew your covenant with the Lord to trust his promises. As found in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Fourth, you can't trust someone you don't know. Therefore, it must become a daily part of your life to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ through study of his word, through fervent prayer with him. God is truthful and cannot lie. God is faithful and will keep all of his promises. God is almighty and cannot be overcome by Satan or by men. God is love and desires that you enjoy all the benefits and graces of salvation. Look to the victorious, resurrected Christ who has already overcome all your enemies and all your fears. Fifth, cast your fears upon the Lord throughout the day as they appear before you. At the beginning of the day, you know what your fears are. Go over your fears. Walk through how you're going to cast your fear upon the Lord. 
Go through before the day occurs in your secret worship at the beginning of the day how you're going to deal with that fear. Deal with it when it happens. At the end of the day, when you, uh, before you lay your head upon your pillow, reflect back over how you did deal with that fear. Repent if you fell back into unbelief, into worry, into anxiety, and renew your covenant the next day to make a new, fresh start. Go through that until, by God's grace, using those means, until you see success in overcoming those fears. Because if you leave that fear alone, if you do nothing about that fear, I can guarantee you one fear will multiply and multiply into many, many, many fears. Sixth, as we said, cling to the promises of Christ in the face of your fears. Know his promises by heart that you can quote. Memorize them. I've given you some of my favorite. Memorize, as I said, the psalms that go along with them so that you can sing them if you're in your car. You can be just singing along about God's sufficiency, his power to overcome your fears. Seven, learn to rest in the knowledge that you are the justified, beloved, and adopted child of God. Learn to enjoy God's love for you, undeserving as you are and as I am. Learn to be humbled, dear ones, humbled, by God's amazing love for you rather than puffed up with pride. God did not withhold even that which was most precious to him, even his own son, to rescue you from your fears. He gave up his only begotten son. And if he gave his only begotten son that which was most precious to him to overcome your fears, he'll not withhold from you anything that is good for you. And finally, lastly, eighth, look in faith to Christ and your heavenly inheritance. Look to that which Christ has prepared for you in heaven, where there will be no more fear. There will be all kinds of fear in hell, but there will be no fear in heaven. No, no slavish, sinful fear. We'll continue to fear in the proper sense, reverence, God, <coughs> hold God in awe and wonder, even to so much a greater degree than we can possibly do now because of all the glory that we will enjoy. But that will be a positive fear. That will only cause us to grow in our love and our praise of the living God. Look to heaven. Look to your heavenly reward. Consider heaven to be gain. Don't look upon this world as gain. Don't look upon what we find here and now as that which is gain. Look upon heaven as being gain so that when you die, you lose nothing but gain everything. Look upon your heavenly reward. Amen. Stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, have mercy upon us, for Lord, we 
see in our lives how we have fallen in various ways into fear and allowed fear to lead us into sinful fear. Instill within us, O God, that that righteous fear, that holy fear for Thee, to hold in awe and wonder. Because when we fear Thee as we ought, we will fear no man, we'll fear no circumstance, we'll fear no event, because we will see that Thou dost control all things. Everything is ordained of Thee for our good. We have nothing, therefore, to fear. We'll not be tormented by guilt, and, but know and trust in the forgiveness of God. We'll know that the sufficiency of Christ is enough and that no saint can, can by his merit, no angel can by his merit, nor can we by our merit add to what Christ, Christ has done. O oh Lord our God, we do pray that thou would send us forth not as those like the wicked who run, who are pursued, O oh God, but rather send us forth as those who trust in Christ, and those who are bold as lions, for we are trusting in the lion of the tribe of Judah, in whose name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves 
would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.